days. Now, what do I mean when I say God's glory is established? What do I mean? Well, first, I don't mean that God's glory needs to be established. I.e., God has not left us to do the work of establishing his glory. For example, Jesus prays in Matthew 6, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus is not asking for us to make God's name holy, but for us to rightly revere God's name as the holy name that it already is. Or in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him with a pre-existing glory. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify us with the glory that Jesus had before the foundation of the world. So God's glory is not something that needs to be established, but it is established. And I don't mean that God's glory didn't exist prior to creation. God's glory did not come into existence when observers of his glory did. You have heard the old saying, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is around to hear it, does it make a sound? Spoiler alert, it does. Every time. Or uh, the famous question of Schrodinger's cat, which goes a little bit like this. You put a cat in a box with a vial of poison and a radioactive atom. The atom can either decay, which will break the vial of poison and kill the cat, or the atom can stay stable, the vial remains unbroken, and the cat will live. Both are possible and yet unknown until an outside observer opens the box to discover the fate of the cat. Here's the problem with thinking of God's glory this way. It makes us, the observers, the most important creatures in the universe. If God's glory only exists when it's observed, then the observer is what makes God glorious. He is not glorious in and of himself. And this is not what the psalmist is saying. Look at verse 1 of our psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says the very name of God is glorious. That name represents the character of God, his being What David says is that God in his nature, in his very being, in his essence, is glorious. God's glory is not only in existence if it is observed. It is not dependent on us. And I don't mean that God's glory is temporary. Think of the greatest country on earth. America, obviously. The established glory of America resides in our Constitution. So long as we stand as a nation, 
We are a glorious nation because we have a glorious constitution. But when America falls, and spoiler alert, just like the tree, she will fall and make a sound. The Constitution then becomes a thing that was glorious. The key word being was. When America falls, the Constitution that upheld America no longer is a glorious thing. God's glory is different. God's glory isn't glorious so long as the church remains strong or thrives. Regardless of the strength of the institution that upholds the glory of God on earth, God is still glorious. His glory is not dependent on us, our success, or our faithfulness as a church, or the success or failure of the American church. God's glory exists, will always exist, did always exist, and can't not exist. Notice again the first verse of our psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice the psalmist says that his glory is above the heavens. It is a glory that is higher than the highest stars. It exists above the created order, and it is not dependent on creation, but a glory that transcends creation. So why does it matter that God's glory is established? Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. God's glory being established matters because it serves the purpose of silencing God's enemies. In every generation, there exists enemies of God. William Plummer, uh, in his commentary on this psalm, says, says this helpfully, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the things which were mighty, and base things of the world, and the things which are despised, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chooses to silence his enemies by establishing his strength, his praise, in the weakness of babies and infants and children. How amazing is that? That God works through the weak And the foolish things of the world, kids are not foolish. But the world doesn't see them as a source of God's strength to confound the strong. And isn't this God's way of doing things normally? Think of David and Goliath. How the strong man of the Philistines had intimidated the entire Israelite army, even the mighty King Saul. And yet a small shepherd boy with a staff and sling struck down this mighty warrior. Or of our world today. I can't imagine a more relevant psalm for our world today. They say, men can become women, and women can marry other women, and men can marry other men. And yet I still know of only one relationship that brings about offspring, that brings about children. Or they say that abortion is essential to reproductive freedom. And yet, when children, uh, children become the greatest offense 
against this argument. Right? When women are shown an ultrasound, they are statistically less likely to go through the abortion every time. Why? Because it's undeniably a human baby given by God and not a clump of cells to be discarded. God has established his order, his designs, his plans, and his glory in the weak to put to shame those who oppose him. One commentator said this, regardless of how the wicked assert themselves, they cannot outdo the evidence of God's glory on the earth and in heaven. It is all around us. His glory is established and no enemy can overcome his kingdom. And ultimately, God does this in the person and work of Jesus. Think of the lowly carpenter. His disciples betrayed him. His community turned on him. Romans beat him and crucified him. And yet this was the very plan of God to defeat once for all time the sin that had overtaken humanity. The greatest victory of all time has been accomplished in the weakest of scenes. And what a great God we have, displaying his glory through weakness to shame the seemingly strong. Okay, so how should we respond to this truth that God's glory is established? First, we must see God's glory. Unbeliever, you need to see the glory of God. Romans 1, verses 18 and 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This makes clear that our sin problem means that we suppress the knowledge of God. And we do this by suppressing God's glory, minimizing it, and rejecting it. And this rightly incurs on us the wrath of God. So every time we say there is no God, you store up for yourself wrath for rejecting his glorious nature, even though it's clearly established in creation. So unbeliever, stop rejecting God and his glory. See it, recognize the God of glory for who he is. Believer, you who have already seen God, the God of glory, and namely seen his glory in Christ, you too, however, must continue to strive to see the glory of God. When you sin, brother, sister, you are functionally denying the glory of God. Every sin says, my glory is more important than yours. Every sin. So confess your sin and seek to put your sin to death because sin fights to dethrone God's established glory. It is our rebellious hearts against his glory. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that's those who've seen God's glory and responded, 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So brother, sister, help others to see the glory of God and lead and live transformed lives in light of the glory of God. God's glory is established in the creation order. But it is not just a glory to be seen, it is a glory to be savored. Because it is a majestic glory. Our second point, God's glory is majestic. Look at verses 3 through 5. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Here's what David's saying. There is no comparison between God and man. God's glory is majestic and his glory is the foundation of our care. David gets to the heart of the matter. He asks a million-dollar question. If God is so glorious and so majestic, then why does he even consider man? Why does he care for us? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Why does God care for us? Well, God doesn't care for us because we are special. Let me repeat that. You are not special in any way that would earn God's care for you. God has formed the stars, the sun and the moon, and he set them in their place in the cosmos. He has made the entire vastness of space. It's so vast that we can't even measure it. We just call it infinite. And what of it we can measure, we have to measure in light years of distance. For example, our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is approximately 40 trillion, 208 billion kilometers away. Because that's a mouthful, we just say it's 4.35 light years. With current technology, it would take us roughly 6,300 years to get there. 6,300 years. And that's just one of the 70 billion trillion stars in our universe. That's a one with 24 zeros after it, if you want to write that down. Good luck. Just think for a minute. The God who made all of that and then placed each one of those stars exactly where it belongs... The God who thinks 40 trillion kilometers is but an arm's reach away. Why should he think about us? We live about 80 to 100 years, and we can't really leave this planet. We did a little bit, but not really. We can't leave our galaxy, which is just one of one galaxy among trillions of galaxies, by the way. And we can't create anything on our own. Everything we make is out of stuff that already exists. We're not creating new matter. We don't get along particularly well. I'm shocked that we've only ever dropped two nuclear devices in war. Absolutely shocked by that. Is that not God's glorious restraining grace? And God has made more glorious creatures than humans, namely the angels who worship him in heaven perfectly without sin forever. 
William Plummer, again, is helpful here. He says, Adam, even when he was created in the image of God, was infinitely beneath his maker. There is no greater gulf than that which separates the created and the uncreated, the finite and the infinite, man and God. In our own strength, we are weak, fragile, we don't live long, we don't really affect much in the universe, and we're not really kind to one another anyways. So why does God care about you? God cares for you because he is glorious. God cares for you because he is glorious. Look at how David answers his own question in verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This is amazing. For all the reasons that make you as nothing compared to God are all the reasons why God is even more glorified in you. His glory is the foundation of our care. Think about this. All of, God, all of man's inherent glory and honor are all within man, but don't come from man. We are lowly creatures and rebels at that. God could wipe us out and left to our own devices, I'm sure we would do just that. We take God out of the picture, and man is dust, created from dust to return to dust. But because God was so pleased of his own choosing to put something within each one of us, we have a glory that we now possess, but we didn't give to ourselves. We now have a worth, a value, a dignity, a glory, and an honor. And what was it that God put into man? It was his image. God has put into man, into every person, his image. Our glory and honor is the image of God. And as image bearers, we enjoy a glory and honor we shouldn't by comparison to even other beings, namely angels. That's what David is saying. We were made less than the angels, but God chose the weak mankind to be his image bearers and not angels. It is in every person knit together in the womb from the moment of conception onward. And if all our worth comes as a gift of God's grace, then can we claim to be anything on our own? No. All our glory is meant to bring God even more glory. God gets glory in magnifying us in our weakness and in our humanity. And we know this is true because when we rebelled, God sent his son to be born a human baby. Jesus completely identified with our humanity in every way. Jesus came to us in our sin and rebellion and identified perfectly with us. God sent Jesus at a low point in human history to bring about the highest glorification of himself by saving the worst rebels of his creation so that we would be to the highest praise of his glory. God's glory sets the stage for our perfect care and our ultimate redemption in Jesus. As Romans 5, 8 puts it, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so how should we respond to this? God's glory must be savored by all people. Unbeliever, you need to really think about this. 
Where are you finding your glory, your value, worth, and dignity? If I could quote R.C. Sproul, he says, Out of nothing, nothing comes. If you come from nothing and return to nothing, then you are nothing. Where are you grounding your human dignity? If it is not in God, then it's a movable standard that will always fail you. So look to the God who grounds your glory in himself and grounds his redeems value in his perfect son, Jesus. And believer, David didn't wake up one morning and suddenly understand how God is the source of our glory. He meditated on God. Christian, you need to really think about this. It is right and good for you to meditate on the words of Scripture and the truth they contain. And this meditation of God's Word should lead you to live a more joyous life of worship. And it should lead you to love God's creation all the more. Not because God's creation is so precious on its own, but because of the God who made it and reveals his glory in and through it. Savor God's glory. Okay. God's glory grounds our value as humans. It's the foundation of our care, of the care of our Heavenly Father. But what is our responsibility in all of this? Brings me to our third point. God's glory is reflected. Look at verses 6 through 9. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what David's saying. Man stands as the capstone of creation to exercise dominion over the earth under the authority of God for the glory of God. Man was put on this earth to reflect the glory of God. Just like everything else God has made, we are here to reflect back to God the glory that he is do. And one way we do this is through the dominion that our Lord has given us. Look at verses 6 through 8. David explains that we have dominion over sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds, fish, and all other sea creatures. And David isn't giving us an exhaustive list of everything we have dominion over, but he is exhausting categories. So we have dominion over the land and all that moves on it. Dominion over the skies and all that flies in them. Dominion over the water and all that swims in them. Verse 9 tells us that this dominion is for the praise of God's name. David, after reflecting on dominion, says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just like in verses 1 and 2, that God's glory is forever established in his creation activity, so too 
is it forever reflected in our stewardship of it? God's glory is established in creation and reflected in our stewardship of his creation. All of this means that we are and all we do is designed to reflect glory back to God. Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so too are we meant to reflect the glory of God. Yet there's a problem. Man alone cannot exercise the dominion described in this psalm. Read Genesis 3, and you will see that man was supposed to exercise dominion over the serpent, and yet the serpent exercised dominion over man. And since then, since our rebellion, we have not been able to exercise the kind of dominion that this psalm describes, kind of perfect dominion. We now have things like hurricanes, floods, fires, tornadoes, earthquake, cancer, diseases, COVID, etc. The dominion we were supposed to exercise perfect, perfectly is now exercised painfully. It's painful. It seems as if the world has dominion over us. But there's hope in this psalm. Whether David knew it or not, he wrote this psalm not only about us, but ultimately about Christ. If you have your Bibles and you can turn to Hebrews, look at Hebrews 2, 5 through 10. This is what Hebrews 2 says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking it has been testified somewhere, it's quoting Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. That God has put all things under the feet of Jesus. All things belong to him. Jesus, when he was born of the virgin, came into this world in our lowliest state as humans, and Jesus, during his incarnation, lived a life of a creature a little lower than the angels to identify completely with us. And because he identified with us, his perfect life his suffering death, Jesus tasted f death for all people who would trust in him. And this suffering servant, this Jesus, is now the founder of our salvation. A salvation that was made perfect through his suffering, and this salvation is bringing many sons to glory in Christ. 
And because our salvation is founded on Christ, our salvation and our glorification in Christ reflect back to Christ an even greater glory. So how should this change the way we live? God's glory must be spoken and sung by all people. Must be. Unbeliever, friend, you must confess that God alone is glorious. Romans 1.21 says that for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friend, your sin, the sin that all of us are guilty of, is to see all that God has made and all that he has given us and say, mine. We, in our selfishness, suppress the truth of God and worship creation instead of the creator. So, friend, turn away from your idolatry and turn to Christ. He came into this world as a human, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, a life we were meant to live. And he died on the cross in your place, in the place of sinful man, and rose from the grave on the third day, defeating forever sin and death for all who trust in him and turn away from their sin. No matter who you are, where you come from, what you've been through, or what you've done, Jesus offers himself freely to you if you would call on him in trust and faith and turn away from your sins. Would you confess Jesus today wouldn't you and believer brother sister are you living like Jesus is king these truths must lead to real change in your life just like the moon doesn't take the light given to it by the sun and hide it away so too you must not take the light that you have given been given by God and keep it to yourself This means we first need to confess our sin. Would the people you associate with outside of the church be surprised to find out that you're a Christian? What sin, I wonder, might be blocking the light of the gospel in your life? Maybe it's idolatry or pride or selfishness. This truth should lead you to kill materialism. It should cause you to think less of ourselves and much, much more of God. And it should cause cause you to care for others like we care for ourselves. If God can rejoice in us and make much of us, how much more should we be making much of others? And maybe it's your refusal to suffer for Christ. Look at what Christ did for you. He suffered and died in your place, and would you now refuse to suffer for him? He suffered well for those he loved. If you love Jesus, then you must also suffer well for him. He bore physical pain. He bore rejection, hatred, slander, and he did it all for the glory of God and for our good. 
So how are you suffering? Are you using your physical pain and weakness as an opportunity to praise Jesus? Are you willing to share the gospel with others at the cost of being ridiculed, alienated, hated, or rejected? Are you bearing witness? Are you bearing with those in your church who are suffering? Are you bearing one another's burdens? David Van Drunen helpfully reminds us that as Christ attained his glorification only through the dark valley of the cross, so also he calls us to suffer with him in outward humility for a while before we attain our glorification. And second, we must praise God. This is first and foremost a psalm of praise. David, after meditating on these truths, praised the Lord with the words of this psalm. When we think of the world, our lives, and the God who made everything, our hearts should burn for the praise and glory of our God. They should turn in God-exalting, Christ-magnifying praise. We should sing with boldness in the church. We should pray with thankfulness all the time. And we should be sharing Christ with others in our lives. We should be living in such a way that every purchase, action, word, and deed reflects back to the glory of Christ. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day we will all bow the knee before King Jesus. In just a moment, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. And this is our way of reaffirming our submission to Jesus as our King now. This is our way to remember that Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For 2,000 years, Christians have taken the Lord's Supper together to remember that we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross and not by any of our own good works. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take the Lord's Supper. Instead of taking a symbol of Jesus' work, we would ask you to receive Jesus. And if you would like to know more about how you can receive Jesus, would you please go to the white flag at the back? One of our pastors will be there to talk with you about what it means to follow King Jesus. And if you aren't ready to talk to someone about that, we would just ask you to stay in your seat. It's no big deal. If you're a believer, if you believe you're a Christian, but you have not yet been baptized into a local church, we'd also ask you not to take the Lord's Supper. Instead of taking one meal with us, we would ask you to begin the path of lifelong obedience to King Jesus. The path that begins with believer's baptism and membership in a local church. If you'd like to know more about what it means, uh, would you also go to the white flag and talk with one of our pastors when we, um, when we take the Lord's Supper?
And if you're not going to be taking communion with us and you want to leave, you're welcome to. No one is going to be staring at you. In fact, it's a great time to leave because our parents need to go back to the nursery and get their kiddos so that our nursery workers can participate and take communion with us. So in just a moment when we sing, please go get your kids. And also, if you're not taking communion, it's a great time for you to leave if you'd like to. But if you are a baptized believer, we invite you to come to the table and receive the Lord's Supper with us. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of glory. That you are not dependent on us. That you do not need us. And yet, Lord, in your kindness, you love us that you love us, and it makes you even more glorious. Lord, we thank you so much that you, the Lord of infinite glory and majesty, would look at lowly humans and say, I love them, and then redeem them when they rebelled in Christ. May we always praise you, the God of glory, for your wonderful work of creation and redemption. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.